Hey everyone, welcome to Weekends. I'm Anna Kasparian with Nando Vila. I love that slow fade in, or was it fade out? Whatever that was, it was good. Yeah. Good work, Kale. Um, yeah. We we always forget Nando to ask yeah. our audience to send us super chat questions. We wait until we're ready to take super chat questions, which is yeah. a bad idea. Um, so send us super chat questions. Uh, we'll yeah. address them in the last segment of the show. And there might be a healthy debate on the show today. Um, you want to tell the audience, Nando, who we're going to have on for our interview segment? We're going to have the wonderful friend of the show, Ben Burgess, uh, you know, mm-hmm. who is the philosopher, uh, academic, writer, uh, thinker, very smart man. He knows like all the arguments. I mean, that's his whole thing yeah. is right. It's like not the left should not be afraid of engaging in arguments both with each other, but also with the right. You know, there was like, this tendency for a long time of like, we don't even talk to those people. Um, and he's like, no, no, you have to confront them head on and you have to argue with them head yeah. on. And so I'm excited to have he's, ben on. Uh, Ben's an expert at uh, giving people an argument and logic for that's the left. True. Logic yeah, facts. I love Ben. You know, yeah. <laughs> So we'll have a great interview segment with him. We're actually going to talk about uh, a recent debate between Noam Chomsky and Brianna Joy Gray um, on uh, Brianna's new podcast, relatively new. Everyone should check that out. Um, And, oh my gosh, I'm blanking right now. Is it Bad Faith, uh, the name of the podcast? Yes. Yes. And it's excellent. So everyone check that out. Um, But it's an interesting debate about uh, whether or not it makes sense for um, people on the left to vote for Joe Biden, even as he has refused to concede on some policy proposals uh, Mm -hmm. for progressives. So we'll talk about that later. And then uh, I'm just going to rage about the fact that people are getting their news from like failed reality show stars. Yes. Well, I mean, we're being governed by one, so I guess it is what it is. But Nando, um, what should we discuss for our banter today? What's on your mind? What did you think about when you woke up this morning? Well, when I think about when I woke up this morning, and I'm sure people can hear it in my voice, but I am a little hungover because last night Anne and I partied, we got drunk, we went to dinner, and we got drunk uh, at Waz's house. It was fun, and we had a great time, but I went to sleep at... 1.30 in the morning or even later. I don't remember what time it was. And then I had to wake up and produce my segment for this show at 7 a.m. So I have not slept. My voice is hoarse. I got my Bernie mug with my tea and honey to get me through it. How are you feeling, Anna? I mean, you can see it in my face. The the thing that's not fair (laughs) is like Nando looks like, I mean, you can hear it in your voice, but you look fresh you look like you've gotten a full night of rest. You do not look like you were drinking last night. I, on the other hand, look like crap. And no. it's okay. It is what, like, I, I was so tempted to, like, not even try. Like, why? Why am I even putting anything on my face? Like, let's just, let's just give people <laughs> the real truth, right? How I really look yeah. this morning. Um, but it was fun. And, you know, I, I just want to, I want to give my, my partner, um, some love, a little bit of a shout yeah. out, Christian, yeah. because he, you know, I met Waz through Michael and yes. he just, he was so good at Br- Michael Brooks, who of course yeah. originally um, was a co-host of the show before he tragically passed away. And I just, 
he had this incredible ability to bring people together. And Nando, you and mm-hmm. I knew each other prior to me meeting Michael in person. Yeah. Um, but I would have never met Waz. Uh, we wouldn't have ever had dinner together um, at right. his place. And it was just like, I felt like he was there, like Michael's spirit um, and everything he represented was there with us last night. And it was just a really comforting feeling, which is yeah. hard to come by these days. You know, the world feels like it's falling apart. Uh, there's negativity everywhere you turn. And I just yeah. felt for the first time in a long time, this overwhelming sense of comfort and warmth mm. and friendship, com- camaraderie. And that's what life's all about, guys. It's not about busting your ass, working 24-7. It's not about material things. It's about the relationships you build. And those are the memories you keep, you know? That's the whole point of existing, in my opinion. And so I'm really grateful for that. No, your your partner made a beautiful toast to Michael. Um, Yeah. I got all emotional. My girlfriend started crying. Uh, You know, it 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 was a beautiful moment. We had some good laughs also. You know, Waz is hilarious. We had some, you know, we had some good, yeah, like you said, camaraderie, comfort, you know, solidarity, all that good stuff. It it, it was in full force, and a lot of a lot of wine and champagne and all manner of yeah. libations, you know. And Definitely. Waz is an excellent cook, but that food was good. Yeah, I was you like guys shocked. He made chicken parmesan. Yeah, and it was amazing. It was so amazing. amazing. It was the it, I was, it like, was like shocked restaurant at how good it was. quality. Yeah, yeah, it was it was really good. Like good food, good drink, good company. That's all what, that what more matters. Focus yeah. on that as everything else is like falling apart yeah. around you, collapsing around you cuz that's what sustains you. Like that's honestly like I'm going to keep thinking about that night every time I get too salty about what's happening in the world. Mm, yeah. Well, that's good. No, we should yeah. do it again. We'll do it again sometime. We'll do it at my place next yeah. time. Yeah. I yeah. love it. And I'll, I'll host as soon as uh, I get my place in order. <laughs> We're like remodeling a bathroom and it's a mess. But anyway. All right. Well, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking for some new books to read, Nando. Yeah. Where can I buy some new books? <laughs> well, luckily enough, Verso Books has a bunch of great books. And it's a new month. Well, it's not really a new month. I'm just re- doing the read. And <laughs> I'm doing like the Anchorman where I'm just reading whatever's uh, on, on, the, on the screen. Uh, no, it's not a new month. It's mid-October. But Verso has... Tons of book club selections. If you join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Versus that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail, all Verso Book Club members will also get fifty percent off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. To celebrate fifty years of radical publishing, each member tier is fifty percent off for your first three months. The reader tier is only five dollars a month and includes all of their ebooks. The comrade tier is twenty dollars a month, and if you join in October, you'll get. The Verso Book of Feminism, Revolutionary Words from Four Millennia of Rebellion, edited by Jesse Kindig. A Kick in the Belly, Women, Slavery, and Resistance by Stella Dadzi. An Event, Perhaps, A Biography of Jacques Derrida by Peter Salmon. A New Edition of The Politics of Friendship by Jacques Derrida. And The Verso Notebook, a lined notebook with a classic Verso cover. Plus, you'll get 15 additional ebooks. I did it. Mm. I got through it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. No, no, but 15 additional ebooks. That's not a joke. That's a no, that's high volume stuff. of ebooks. Yep. I love yeah. it. Love Verso. Love their authors. So definitely check them out. Yeah. All right, Nando. Um, let's talk. You know, we have a journalism themed show today, uh, which I think is so great and so important. And yeah. uh, one of the, I would say, uh, 
most important cases when it comes to the protection of journalism involves Julian Assange. And I can't wait yeah. to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, no, Anna, you know, you're a you're a journalism professor at, at a university. You know, uh, I, I worked in the news business for a long time. I very much care about journalism. I know it's I realize that it maybe it's a little nerdy, but I very much care. And this case, the Julian Assange case is so important and so critical. And it just is not really being discussed, certainly not in the mainstream media. Um, so I wanted to kind of get into it a little bit um, for you guys. So, yeah. Throughout the Trump presidency, liberals and much of the media have loved to talk about how much of a threat the orange Cheeto in the White House is to a free press. But the biggest threat to journalism today is not Trump, but a court in the UK. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange appeared this week at a London court fighting extradition to the U.S. The 49-year-old faces charges over the release of secret government documents. Yeah, Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, who for years wasted away in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, is now on trial to determine whether he will be extradited to the United States, where he will surely be sentenced to a long sentence in a supermax prison so that he will finally be silenced for good. The Assange case is the biggest threat to press freedom today because it would set the precedent that the United States has every right to imprison a non-U.S. citizen operating outside of the U.S., for the crime of publishing true information. And this would re represent a massive blow to the First Amendment because up until Assange, the United States would aggressively pursue leakers, meaning the people who would obtain the secret information, like, say, Edward Snowden or Chelsea Manning, while not going after publishers, the people who then receive that information and put it out in the world. Remember, with the Snowden leaks, the story was broken by The Guardian and The Washington Post, while Snowden himself is on the run from the law, the Washington Post is not under any legal threat. Regardless of what happens to Private Manning, any prosecution of Assange will be fraught with problems because WikiLeaks wasn't alone in publishing the classified material. The New York Times also published some of it. If the government were to try and prosecute WikiLeaks and not the Times, it would likely need to prove that Assange was actively involved in a conspiracy to illegally obtain the documents. And according to Kevin Costola, who was one of the few American journalists actually covering the trial, Julian Assange faces 17 counts of allegedly violating the Espionage Act. This law has never in its history been directed against a journalist or publisher. There have been cases threatened against the press. There have been cases threatened against individual journalists, but the charges have never been filed. But the Assange case has gotten almost no attention because our media can only understand an issue if there is a neat partisan split on it. And in the Assange case, that just doesn't have that. In fact, there is full bipartisan agreement that Assange is evil and deserves whatever is coming to him. Let's see how this dynamic breaks down using America's most important political TV show, The View. The liberal case against Julian Assange is neatly summarized by the show's resident liberal lion, Joy Behar. What, why is this oh, happening? Did he break the law? Is it a problem? Well, remember what he did originally. Yeah, tell. Well, he, he, uh, he hacked into uh, the Democrats' um, computers and, and helped Trump get elected, basically, by exposing Podesta's emails. Mm -hmm. And then and then Comey went after Hillary. Remember that? And yeah, that, I do. Yeah, yeah. That's why In Trump won, basically. Mm -hmm. 
Now, it's important, Julian Assange did not hack into the DNC's computer. He just received the leak. Someone else hacked into the D- into the DNC computers. But the liberals are mad at Assange because in 2016, WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks published a series of emails that showed conclusively how the DNC worked closely with the Hillary Clinton campaign to sabotage Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary. And liberals claimed that these embarrassing leaks were somehow responsible for Trump's victory, so they hate Assange. And the conservative case against Assange is different. They're mad at him because they see him as a threat to the national security state. And this view is summed up neatly by The View's resident conservative firebrand, Meghan McCain. I think what you said was just straight propaganda, just so we're clear. I'm well, sorry. Well, if the law is propaganda, I'm sorry. It is then not, I'm sorry. They're not First Amendment. He was a cyber terrorist from day one, which is how we got in the situation we're in right now. You released 750,000 classified or sensitive information that put our military at risk, that put our spies at risk, that put our diplomats at risk. And I'm sorry, but Democrats only started caring once it started implicating Hillary Clinton. And I am very consistent on this issue for years and again. So yes, the right sees Assange not as a publisher of leaks, but a cyber terrorist who threatens our beloved heroes in uniform. And like so many things in our political discourse, both sides are annoying and wrong. But luckily, we have a comrade who is willing to cut through the bullshit and get to the truth of the matter. That's right. CJ herself, (laughs) the iconic Pamela Anderson, went on The View and defended her friend, Julian Assange. Well, I wouldn't be a cyber terrorist, which he is. He's he hacked information. He didn't leaks hack. included classified documents that put our national security at risk, our military, you know who and the lives of spies and diplomats is the, is the at military. risk. Who, how many people have the, military, the American so, government killed innocently, and how many has WikiLeaks? So killed? you think the military is putting the government at risk? The military has put many innocent lives at risk. Oh, calm down, sir. Hell yeah, Pam. As she rightly points out, the focus on WikiLeaks WikiLeaks itself obscures the crimes that they exposed. But go off, Queen. Yeah, war crimes need to be punished, and they haven't. The the war crimes that he's exposed, no one's no one's done anything about it. But they put him in jail to shut him up. Are you talking about the 210 video of the helicopter fire killing civilians in Iraq? Yeah, well, that's one thing. But there's so many other things that he's exposed, and it's not just America. He's exposed. He's exposed Russia. He's exposed all sorts of different countries. And the video that they're referring to in that clip was perhaps WikiLeaks' most famous revelation when the organization burst onto the scene in 2010. It showed U.S. troops aboard an Apache helicopter circling over Baghdad, indiscriminately murdering people who didn't pose any threat whatsoever. Once you get on, just open up. Yeah, Roger. I, um, I see your element got uh, well, about four Humvees uh, right along this. Uh, You're clear. All uh, right, firing. Line here, with the state line. Uh, let me know when you have it. We'll shoot. Light them all up. Come on, fire. Hey, Roger. Keep shooting. Keep shooting. Two things. Bushmaster, two things. We need to move time now. All right, we just engaged all eight individuals. Yeah, we got two Americans. We're still firing. Roger. I got him. Two six. This is two six. We're moving. We got this. Oh, fuck. All right. Well, it's bypass. God damn it, Kyle. All right. Yeah, and two of the victims of that account of uh, that attack were actually Reuters journalists. But you know, again. The real criminal is Assange. And it's hard to overstate the impact that that video had on clarifying the exact role that the U.S. played in Iraq. 
that it was not there in some heroic capacity to liberate the country from evil. It was there doing the evil. And that was just one piece of what WikiLeaks published. It was and still is absolutely shocking to see. But if we zoom out a bit and look at the totality of what WikiLeaks published, we see perhaps the most comprehensive evidence of how power actually operates and why Assange is seen as such a threat to the most powerful and evil people on the planet. So let's do a quick recap. In 2010, WikiLeaks published a massive trove of documents known as the Iraq War Logs, the Afghan War Logs, and the State Department Cables. They painted an astonishing picture of how the U.S. operates in the world. The Iraq War Logs in particular were crucial to understand just how many innocent civilians were being killed by the American invasion. In fact, they formed the basis of the Iraq Body Count, which is a database that seeks to document the deaths in that war. And I think it's worth hearing Assange himself talk about the significance of that at length. So that was 400,000 documents, each one written in military speak. On the other hand, each one having a geographic coordinate down often to 10 metres, a death count of civilians, US military troops, Iraqi troops, uh, and uh, suspected insurgents. So it was the, the first, um, the, rather the, the largest, because we also did the Afghan war logs, the, the largest history of a war, the most detailed, significant history of a war to have ever been published probably at all, uh, but definitely during the course uh, of a war. And so it it provided a a picture of the everyday squalor of war, from children being killed at roadside blocks to over a 1,000 people being handed over uh, to the Iraqi police for torture, um, to the reality um, of... Um, close air support and, and how uh, modern military uh, combat, combat is done, leaking, linking up with other information such as this video uh, that we discovered of the men surrendering, uh, being, being attacked. So it, it's, as, a, as, an, as an archive of human history, um, this is um, a beautiful and horrifying thing, both, both at the same time. It is the, the history of the nation of Iraq in most significant recording uh, during um, its most significant development uh, in, in the past um, 20 years. And while we always see um, newspaper stories revealing and personalising some, indivi- if we're lucky, some individual event or some individual family dying, this provides the broad scope of the entire war and all the individual events. over The details of over 104,000 deaths. And we work together to statistically analyse this and with um, various groups um, around the world, such as the Iraq Body Count, uh, who became a specialist in, a specialist in this area, and, and lawyers here in the UK who represented Iraqi refugees, to pull out the stories of 15,000... Iraqi civilians, labelled as civilians by the US military, who were killed, who were never before reported in the Iraqi press, never before reported in the, in the US press or in the world press, even in aggregate, even saying today a thousand people died, not reported in any manner whatsoever. And you just think about that. 
um, 15,000 people um, whose deaths were recorded by the US military but were completely unknown. Think about that. I mean, think about the revelations that WikiLeaks provided for us, the evidence that WikiLeaks provided for us. Without WikiLeaks, we would only get a sense of what happened in Iraq. But because of WikiLeaks, we know what happened in Iraq. And that's a pattern in a lot of their leaks. As leftists, we all have a critique of U.S. empire and how power works, but we rarely get such an unvarnished look at it. It confirms a lot of our suspicions with incontrovertible facts. For example, we understand that the U.S. empire also meddles in other countries in order to serve the interests of large corporations. You know, that's like a classic critique. Well, thanks to WikiLeaks, we actually got a look at how brazen that can often be. WikiLeaks revealed how Hillary Clinton's State Department actively intervened to pressure Haiti's government to stop a minimum wage increase at the behest of American clothing manufacturers like Fruit of the Loom, Levi's, and Hanes. Remember, Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And in June 2009, the Haitian parliament passed a minimum wage increase that would increase workers' pay from 24 cents an hour to 62 cents an hour, or about $5 a day. But the American factories refused to go along with it, and they appealed to the State Department for help. And according to the reporting at the time, to resolve the impasse between the factory owners and parliament, the State Department urged quick intervention by then-Haitian President René Preval. A more visible and active engagement by Preval may be critical to resolving the issue of the minimum wage and its protest spin-off, or the risk the political environment spiraling out of control, argued U.S. Ambassador Janet Sanderson in a June 2 June 10, 2009, cable back to Washington. Two months later, lo and behold, Preval negotiated a deal with Parliament to create a two-tiered minimum wage increase, one for the textile industry at about $3 a day, and one for all other industrial and commercial sectors at about $5 a day. Still, the U.S. Embassy wasn't pleased. A deputy chief of mission, David E. Lindwall, said the $5 per day minimum, quote, did not take economic reality into account, but was a populist measure aimed at appealing to the unemployed and underpaid masses. My God, the horror. So think about this kind of thing when you hear about Assange. For the last several years, the discourse about WikiLeaks has had an obsessive focus on him as an individual, not the much bigger story of the consequential information that he revealed. And to the extent that WikiLeaks is covered in the U.S., they talk about Assange, his alleged bizarre behavior, his supposed sexual improprieties, or whether he was skateboarding in the Ecuadorian embassy. There have been reports for some time that Assange was sort of, uh, had outlived his welcome there in the embassy for all sorts of reasons, including that he was skateboarding in the halls and stealing Wi-Fi, and that his cat had been making a mess. So, you know, the Ecuadorians were getting sick of having him there. Okay. Okay, we're going to come back to that business casual cat, but... But the first thing I need to know is, why the hell was Julian Assange skateboarding in the hallways of an embassy and stealing their Wi-Fi? I encourage all of you to go seek out that full clip of Trevor Noah, that whole segment of Trevor Noah on Julian Assange. As producer Kale said, it's not not funny. It's like anti-funny. Anyway, (laughs) so what is going on at his trial? Well, for starters, for some reason... He's being kept in a glass box in the courtroom like he was some sort of Bond villain. 
And reports also say that the prison he's being kept in is freezing cold. This is a tweet from Stella Morris, the mother of Assange's two children. Quote, I spoke to Julian just now. For the past week, his section of the prison has had no heating. Julian is trying to insulate his cell by boarding up the opaque window, which has bars, with books people have sent in as gifts. But it's cold, and he's cold. And according to Gostola, the, the American reporter covering the trial, what's likely to happen next is the judge will issue a ruling. And then, depending on the outcome, the U.S. government is going to appeal, or Julian Assange's team will appeal. So it's going to go through at least one or two higher-level courts before it is over and done with. And that will involve challenging the way the case was handled and managed by the judge. It won't involve any new evidence. It'll be arguments over abusive process. After that, if he runs out of avenues for appeal, then if he has lost, he'll be brought to the United States. And if he is brought to the United States, there is no way that he's going to get a fair trial. There is the possibility, perhaps, that a Biden administration could pardon Assange. But in the past, Biden has called Assange a terrorist. So it's Hard to imagine that actually happen, happening. So if Assange is ultimately thrown into an American gulag for the crime of publishing true information, the effect it will have on future leaks will be absolutely chilling. I mean, we cannot let them get away with it. I mean, forget everything you've heard about Assange. The vast majority of it is bullshit. The important thing to focus on is the bigger picture, and that is that we need to know what the fa- powerful forces that govern our lives are up to, and to do so... We need to challenge them directly. If Assange is silenced for good, that is going to be much, much more difficult. You're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, some of the, not some of the, all of the legacy media outlets uh, and publications can't see the damage that they're doing to themselves in the long term and maybe even the short term when they don't stand up uh, for Julian Assange. I, I think yeah. that corporate media in America is so blinded by its bias against Julian Assange because yeah. they see him as the shadowy figure who single-handedly uh, led to Donald Trump, right? Yeah. I, I mean, we heard it in the clips that you played earlier in your segment. And it's just a way to refuse taking any responsibility for the failures of the Democratic Party, the inability to take responsibility for pushing an incredibly flawed and disliked candidate like Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton. I'm glad you brought up um, her actions in Haiti and how how incredibly damaging her ideology was, not just to people here in the United States, but throughout the world. And yeah. so that fact doesn't change if Julian Assange uh, is out of the picture, did, did absolutely nothing with the leaks. That that truth is still the yeah. truth. And, and they have to take responsibility for it. Uh, but the media, you know, they, they like to spin things and provide positive PR for s- corporate politicians that they want access to, that they feel, uh, intimidated, intimidated by because of their insane accumulation of power. And so uh, journalism is really at risk right now. And they're completely unaware of it. They don't really care because they see yeah. Julian Assange as a nobody. They don't see him as a part uh, of journalism, right? They just think that he's uh, a politically motivated person who's out to get uh, corporate Democrats. And yeah. the truth, like, that couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah. You know, it's just, and then one thing I wanted to just quickly mention um, 
is that what's happening to Snowden does remind me a lot of what happened to, I'm sorry, what happened to Assange does remind me a lot of Edward Snowden. Because when Edward Snowden spoke to Glenn Greenwald and let the American people know that they were indiscriminately being spied on, (laughs) the media covered it not not because of the surveillance that was taking place. It was all about killing the messenger. Immediately, yeah. the debate, I mean, there was no conversation about how damaging that is and, and how awful it is that the government can indiscriminately uh, spy on Americans and collect all this data on them. The conversation was about, oh, is this treason? Should yeah. he stand trial? Yeah. You know, it's just, yeah. Uh, you were going to well, say something. I, Sorry. No, the, the, it's it's just it's it's funny because you know the the New York Times, for example, publishes uh, classified information all the time. It's like incredibly routine, you know, and it's ninety nine percent of the time, it is purposefully leaked by some national security ghoul to the New York Times for with the purpose mm-hmm. of furthering the interests of the national security state. Right? There is these kind of that's the vast majority of the leaks that are. Uh, that of, of classified information is just like selectively chosen by the Pentagon or the CIA or whomever um, in order to further a narrative that serves their interests. And that's no, there, there is no, there's never any talk about like prosecuting someone for publishing those leaks or let alone the actual leaker, you know, the person who, you know, the undersecretary of whatever the hell um, person who called up a reporter, the New York times, like, Hey, look, I have this email that says blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, it th- that is never discussed. It only is a discussion if the leaks are embarrassing to the national security state or politicians or people in yeah. power more broadly. And it's just the the amount of hysteria and misinformation about Assange and WikiLeaks and what he did at the time. Is, is, is just mind-blowing. I mean, there was like, you know, he's putting like U.S. servicemen at rakes. There is no evidence whatsoever. There's zero evidence whatsoever that a single WikiLeaks leak, publish, uh, published leak, had any nefarious effect on anyone in, in like in I the mean, U.S. Nando, military or anything like that. It's just there's nothing, I think- like zero evidence, evidence of that. I think you're being unfair. I mean, Meghan McCain said that it did put right. people at risk. And Meghan McCain right. would be an expert on that as someone who's never earned anything in her entire life and wrote, <laughs> wrote on the coattails of her father. Um, right. So I don't know. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust her? Or are you going to trust the, you know, the words right. of uh, this well-researched segment that you just shared with the audience? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. No. She's such a yeah. clown. It's amazing. She's, she's, and look, I, I, yeah. and I think that I think – for some journalists, uh, there's a level of envy and jealousy uh, when you have totally. these, you know, journalists who, uh, you know, like Glenn Greenwald, for instance, like Edward Snowden yeah. went to Glenn Greenwald. I have no doubt in my mind that in this highly competitive line of work, there was a, a level of jealousy uh, that that factored into the way they covered the story, mm-hmm. right? And the same can be said of the leaks coming from WikiLeaks, um, you know. It's human nature. Well, it, it's it's, it's that, but that's, that's important. Import, that point is important. Like Ed Snowden went to Glenn mm-hmm. Greenwald specifically because he could trust Glenn Greenwald to not basically run it through the Pentagon first before publishing. You know, like you know, the, the, mm-hmm. famously, the New York Times um, had the story of President Bush's warrantless wiretapping of Americans, which was an explosive story. 
Um, this was, you know, a journalist from the New York Times had the goods on this story before the 2004 election. Okay. And then the New York Times basically told him, we have to check with, you know, the Pentagon and, you know, the, basically the national security state, whether it's okay to publish this, you know, and the national security state is like, yeah. no, you can't publish this. And they basically held it for months. And the election went by. The American people did not know about it at the time of the election. And it wasn't until after that they published it when Bush had already won re-election. And it was because they had they they went to the national security state to ask them basically permission to publish this. You know, this flagrantly illegal thing that the Bush administration was doing, right? You know, of course, they always claim, you know, it's going to put American lives at risk and blah, 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 blah. It's going to help the terrorists. And they then always the, say the, that. And then, and then the New York Times blinks and, and that's how they win. That's how the bad guys win. You cannot trust the New York Times to do that. You know, you have to go. That's why we, it's like one of the biggest reasons why WikiLeaks was necessary at the time, because it was a, a guaranteed way for the leaker you know, in, in, in the case of WikiLeaks, Chelsea Manning, who was also thrown into a, a gulag and, and basically tortured for, for years. Um, the, she, she could trust Assange to publish this, where she could not trust the New York Times. And Ed Snowden can trust Greenwald to publish this, where she, whereas he could not trust the New York Times. Because the New York Times has to check. That's just what they do. And so... Right. They have so to check. And, and part of the reason why <clears throat> they go in that direction is because... If they don't and they ruin their relationship with the national security state, yeah. then they can't serve as stenographers when someone from the intelligence community comes to them uh, to plant a seed, you know, create a narrative about whatever's happening abroad and why the United States needs to intervene. I mean, that's that's exactly what we got this year with the story about how um, in Afghanistan, uh, allegedly, yeah. the Russians are helping to uh, arm the Taliban and offering uh, bounties for American soldiers. They just <laughs> regurgitated what some national security or, or intelligence community member told them without doing proper fact checking. Right. To ensure that what they're printing isn't just simply, again, uh, a transcript of what some some person in a position of power yeah. told them. Like, that's yeah. not journalism. No. And they know it. They know it. Yeah. But to them, getting a scoop is super important. It allows you to break a story. I got a scoop. Yeah. But you're being manipulated. You're being played. I think to some extent, legacy media journalists know that. But it doesn't matter. It, this is... It's everything is commodified in in journalism, right? Mm -hmm. So it's all about ratings. It's all about circulation. It's all about advertising. It's all about doing what you can to stand out, even if the reporting you're doing isn't properly vetted, mm -hmm. is being used as a form of manipulation, right? To get yeah. the public to sign on to whatever war. It's just, it's disgusting. And it's yeah. it's against everything that journalism is supposed to be about, ethically speaking. Yeah. So... I, and know, then one final I, thing I want to... Go ahead. Go oh, ahead, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Just one final thing I want to add is, look, I think that it makes all the sense in the world to criticize uh, corporate Democrats who have gone after Assange. But I feel like we also forget to mention that right now it's Donald Trump's Department yeah. of Justice that's trying to extradite Julian Assange. Yeah. So let's let's also be honest about that because I think that... I think that everyone is guilty of doing this, where it's like you want to blame a specific party 
for uh, their cruelty toward leakers, their cruelty toward people like Julian Assange. No, this is when it comes to American empire, when it comes to people in positions of power in this country, they all want the same thing for the most part. Right. No, there is few exceptions. There is full bipartisan agreement. And, um, you know, it's it's obviously like, you know, the mind numbing debate at the time was that, like, you know, Trump was a fan of WikiLeaks because, you know, he they published these embarrassing things about Hillary Clinton. And like there's all this kind of breathless talk about whether like the Trump administration was coordinating with the the timing of the leaks with WikiLeaks and the thing. And there's an email between, you know, someone and, and whatever. And it's like, guys, just look at what's going on. You know, like yeah. Trump, it's, it's, you know, like all that, that just thinking of it in those terms, like, you know, just thinking of it purely in the part, like how it fits the partisan war, the sort of never ending partisan war is just so damaging to the truth, right? The truth is just, yeah. is plain for everybody to see. Just look through the stuff that WikiLeaks has published. Just look through it. I mean, it's, I mean, I've talked to just a, a, a small percentage of it i mean it's 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 astonishing and it's not only the united states i mean they've you know crimes in africa and and all you know like tons of different uh um, regimes like they you know they they have they basically toppled the government in kenya with some leaks you know back in 2006 or 7 um it's it's just it's it's astonishing what they've done and um and a, a, a absolutely um net positive in, in like any of the criticisms you could have of Assange, like pale, pale in comparison to the contribution that WikiLeaks has had to our understanding of how power works around the world, Absolutely. not just the United States, but everywhere. It's um, so. Yeah, yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I loved, I love that segment. Um, well, you. we're continuing on with this theme of journalism and, uh, Mine isn't as serious uh, as Nando's uh, segment today, but it, it really, it certainly evoked um, rage this week that I want to share with you guys. So journalism is one of the most competitive fields of work, a competitive line of work, especially right now when you look at the media landscape and the number of companies that are shutting down or number of companies that get gobbled up by these giant media conglomerates that usually leads to the loss of journalism jobs. Uh, When you look at the digital media landscape, I mean, there have been countless digital media outlets that have shuttered their doors uh, as a result of not being able to make enough money to survive. And so there are so many well-trained, well-intentioned journalists out there who can't find jobs. Which makes it even more infuriating when you watch the news on television and you see that reality show stars from like the 1990s are being placed in the position of public health experts to tell us what schools should do or shouldn't do when it comes to keeping us safe during the pandemic. Latest example actually happened this week on Fox News with Rachel Campos Duffy, who was uh, one of the... 1990s real world stars on MTV. And uh, here's her expert advice on what schools should do with masks. When I dropped my son off for college, I was really struck by how compliant, again, happy the kids are being safe, but I thought it was, you know, really odd in an American university where we see, you know, so much compliance which again, for the health safety is good, but what are the long-term repercussions? Rachel? 
Yeah, listen, we know that China has used COVID to reinforce control over their population because communism requires submission and compliance. I'm worried because so many of the rules that even my children who are going to school, um, I see them, you know, they, they wear masks outside when I pick them up. We know that the science doesn't back them up. this up. I know our schools do that because the government says they have to. Um, but again, I'm worried that as children, this is a very formative age, I feel like some of the things we're doing to them um, is cruel. I think that it um, is reinforcing submission um, to government, and it's creating a lot more fear than is necessary for children who we know are not super spreaders and are, you know, have more of a chance of dying of the flu than they are of COVID. I do think it's fascinating that uh, she thinks of submission and compliance, specifically when it comes to communism, socialism. She doesn't think about the submission and compliance that every single one of us have to abide by in order to make a living in this country. Uh, we submit and we comply literally every single day. But anyway, that's beside the point. Let's go back to the topic of journalism. Look, to be fair, uh, she's the exact type of person you would expect Fox News uh, to hire as a contributor, to share her expert opinions on public safety and public health, uh, because Fox News likes to hire morons who literally disinform Americans. That is their number one role. And one of the examples uh, recently of Compost Duffy specifically disinf uh, spreading disinformation toward the American people um, had to do with uh, her comments on migrant detention centers, specifically migrant detention centers where children were being caged. Check out her commentary on that. The border, uh, the, the detention centers are far safer than the journey that these, oh God, that these that children just came on. And and I will say this, you know, it, it's it, it, people aren't stupid. I spoke to an, some African-Americans who say, gosh, the, the conditions of the detention center are better than some of the projects that I grew up in. Um, people are looking <laughs> at this and saying, let's not smear our border patrol. Uh, they're trying to do the best they can. These and children were situation. brought here um, under horrible, irresponsible circumstances. And, and so obviously what she's saying there is absolute garbage. Um, how can you uh, figure out that what she's saying is garbage? All you need to do is look at the number of children who have died while being placed in these migrant detention centers. So I should note that the Trump administration has decided to stop updating the public on how many immigrants have been dying or migrants have been dying in these detention centers. But here's what we know uh, from what was reported earlier. From December 2018 to 2019, July 2019, at least six child migrants have died while being detained by the Trump administration. And while people love to point to uh, the Obama administration and how unbelievably harsh his policies were toward immigrants. And I do agree with those criticisms. Obama, you know, didn't have migrant children dying while in U.S. custody. Not a single one. And I think that's relevant because it shows how Donald Trump's blanket policy uh, toward migrants at the border, where he would prosecute every single one of them, led to children living in squalor in these cages, not being taken care of, basically dealing with inadequate food. Many of them got incredibly sick. As you can see from the numbers, some of them became so sick that they died while in these detention centers. One story that still haunts me today was a story of a, a little boy from Guatemala who, who traveled here by himself seeking safety. And then he was later found 
dead, surrounded by his own vomit. But hey, a 1990s reality show star from the real world says that the conditions were great, so we should just believe that, right? Why are we getting our news from her? Why are we getting our commentary from her? She has no expertise. She has no background in public health. Clearly, based on the stupid things she said about compliance and submission, she doesn't even know anything about the world around her. But let me continue. Uh, the number of migrant deaths is even higher when you include adults, right? So from June of 2019, or by June of 2019, I should say, 24 immigrants had died in ICE custody during the Trump administration. Again, those numbers are probably higher. It's just that the Trump administration doesn't care to update us on uh, the real number of migrants that have died under uh, his custody. And look, in a 2014 interview with BuzzFeed, Campos Duffy was asked about how she was the only cast member from the real world in the 1990s who seemed to have a problem with uh, another cast member who had tested HIV positive. His name was Pedro Zamora. Uh, He tragically died later. And so at the time... Uh, she was the only cast member who was speaking out against it, which I think is interesting because as we all know, you can't catch HIV by being in the same room with someone who has HIV, right? It's not airborne. Whereas this virus, coronavirus, is airborne and she's telling people not to wear masks. She's saying that it's cruel to ask children in schools to wear masks. Okay, so it's cruel when it comes to a contagious airborne virus, But when it comes to HIV, which again is not airborne, oh, you feel uncomfortable. She said, I think I might have been the only one in the hyper PC world of 1993 San Francisco who dared express what I think we were all feeling. I think somebody felt some apprehension. I think everybody felt some apprehension about it. But at the time, it was very un-PC to say so. No, but it wasn't just un-PC. It was dumb. It was dumb, much like her commentary about coronavirus and whether or not children should wear masks. And unfortunately, it's not just about her. I know I've been harping on Compost Duffy as if uh, she's the only one who uh, gets treated as some sort of expert in the media. We see this across all media. Okay, it doesn't matter if it's Fox News, doesn't matter if it's CNN. CNN has a knack for hiring uh, former political aides as contributors, as if They're journalists who have uh, some incredibly important investigative skills to share with the audience. These are politicians. These are people who uh, are going to push a a corporate politician narrative, and we see it all the time. When it comes to other shows, like The View, for instance, we get the same treatment, right? And some might say, well, that's just a morning show. Why are you freaking out about that? Well, let me just note that The New York Times uh, referred to The View as the most important political TV show in America. And uh, that is unfortunate because we have people who are not uh, politically trained, people who are not journalists, people like uh, Whoopi Goldberg, carrying out shameful interviews like what you're about to watch. Well, but Bernie, just just so we're clear, you you worked for Hillary, but it took you a very, very long time to 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 hop in. And your people also, it took a very long time for them to hop in. So when I say that, that's what I'm talking about. Well, I I don't accept that characterization. But the point is, people have a right. Why are you still in the race? People have a right. Last I heard, people in a democracy have a right to vote, and they have a right to vote for the agenda 
that they think can work for America, especially in this very, very difficult moment. We are assessing our campaign, as a matter of fact, where we want to go forward. But people in a democracy Uh do have a right to vote. And right now, in this unprecedented moment in American history, I think we need to have a very serious discussion about how we go forward. And one of the things that I am working on with other members of the Senate and Congress is a new stimulus package, which not only makes sure that all of our people in this crisis have health care, but also that they continue to receive their paycheck. We have got to understand where we are at. And right now is April 1st. It is likely possible there are millions of people who cannot pay their rent, cannot pay their mortgage. But wouldn't it be smarter for you to continue on that path to make sure that gets done? Well, we are doing it. Believe me, I am doing it. Our nature of our... I'm sitting in my house right now. I'm not holding a rally in Wisconsin because of the nature of campaigns. But right now, what I am primarily focusing on with other members of the Congress is a new corona, what we call the coronavirus for stimulus package, which will guarantee that every worker in America continues to receive his or her paycheck, that states and cities get the kind of revenue they need to take, maintain their payroll and take care of the work that they have got to do. What I am very worried about so your is plan that is people to stay cannot in, afford yes? So Whoopi Goldberg, not interested in talking about stimulus, not interested about talking about how to keep Americans safe in their homes while this pandemic uh, rips across the country. All Whoopi Goldberg cares about is when is Bernie Sanders going to drop out of the race? Because he keeps talking about raising taxes on people like me. And I've Mm -hmm. spent the last several months whining and crying about it as if I'm the one who should be aggrieved right now. Whoopi Goldberg has no business weighing in on politics, especially on what has been referred to by the New York Times as one of the most important political talk shows. If it's going to be a political talk show, how about have political journalists on? How about have actual experts on? How about not hiring models, actresses, failed reality stars to pose as experts or journalists when Americans should be getting their news from people who actually know what they're talking about. So yeah, I'm irritated by it because there are all these unemployed journalists out there who deserve jobs, who have worked hard, but they keep getting brushed aside so we can have big names from the 1980s and 1990s like Whoopi Goldberg uh, weighing in on our political climate. I think it's pathetic and I'm really sick of seeing it across the board, whether it's a a left wing, when I say left wing, I mostly mean liberal, a a liberal political show or a right wing political show. It doesn't matter. It happens across the board. And I think it's incredibly damaging to the country because it furthers the spread of misinformation. It furthers the spread of biased opinions that get repackaged into this cute little bundle of so-called news that's supposedly unbiased. It's pathetic. I can see through it. I think the American people can see through it, which is why when Donald Trump uses the phrase fake news, it resonates with people. And I think that the journalistic establishment should take a step back and think about the damage they're doing to the country, but more importantly, the damage they're doing to the entire profession in this country. Uh, You know, I I did not know that you were going to use that 
whoopee clip from the view i mean i had a whole thing on the view on my segment very view heavy show and i had forgotten about that whoopee interview i mean that all those those weeks like kind of right after the super tuesday uh where bernie was basically defeated um i like our like i've just like blocked them out of my memory for the most part and that Mm -hmm. was just a you know i didn't realize like how angry that was gonna make me but uh yeah, I mean yeah. it's it's uh I mean it's funny like Rachel Campos was in in real world San Francisco as you say which is like pretty much considered I think like the the um the opening salvo of reality TV like it was like the first kind of really mm-hmm. major hit cultural phenomenon was real world San Francisco and it's like spawned obviously the reality TV industry which of course is probably like the most the biggest reason why Donald Trump is is the president is because he was a reality TV star um like you know that yep. was a, a huge driver of his so it's funny to think of just like the amount of damage that has been wrought by that real world San Francisco show like I wonder if like we could, if we can imagine yeah. a movie where we go back in time and stop the production of that and maybe we will never have reality TV <laughs> Yeah, Remember, it's, like, it's Elizabeth horrifying. Hasselbeck was, like, yeah. considered, like, during the Bush administration, the she view, was on The right? View, and she was yeah. a contestant from The Survivor or whatever. I don't even remember. But yeah. why is she weighing in on politics? Like, what what well, is Rachel- her? And I'm not saying that average Americans can't weigh in on politics. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. But in these positions that could be filled right. by people who actually have the expertise to weigh in on the issue, like, it just doesn't happen. It's all about... What's the biggest name? I remember my agent like begged me to take a meeting with the executive producer of The View at the time, right? <laughs> and I didn't want to and the reason why he begged me is because A, I didn't really care to be on The View even though everyone thought like that would be the best thing in the world, your name would get out there, but I'd be miserable, I know myself. And yeah. also I didn't really want to fly from LA to New York to have a meeting with someone that I I really didn't think was worth it or would even materialize into anything um substantive. But I remember sitting there having this interview with the guy for an hour and a half. And the final thing he said to me was, and I think this is so indicative of what we're seeing in the industry right now. I really like you. You're really smart. You have a lot of interesting things to say. The problem is you're not Latina and we're really looking for, you know, a Latina to to fill this role. (laughs) And I was like, that's insulting to me. That's insulting to Latinas because you're just looking to like meet a quota. Or fill a role based on aesthetics or, you know, nationality, whatever it is. But that's that's how television news works. That's how television shows work. And that's part of the reason why I don't really care to uh, be part of that side of the industry. They should give Pamela Anderson her own show. I would I would listen. I would watch that. You know, know, she was a Baywatch star, (laughs) but, you know. She she's got the good takes. I'll I'll watch her show. <laughs> we'll make an exception for, for for Pamela. <laughs> um. So I'm not sure if uh, Ben's on with us yet. Uh. Oh, yep. This, Ben's here. Yeah. So nice. You wanna you wanna go straight to our interview segment? Let's do it. Let's there do he it. is. Hey Ben. Hey Anna Nando. Good to see you. Very Miami, Miami heavy show. You know, Anna, you know, Anna has some ties to Miami. Ben lived in Miami. I'm from Miami. The Miami is taking over left media. Yep. Yep. I love it. Um, Ben, I'm ready for you to give us some arguments. Uh, We are actually going to weigh in on an argument. Um, Well, more of a debate uh, that happened recently on the Bad Faith podcast. Um, So let me set this up. 
and go to some clips. And I can't wait to hear uh, your take on it. And by the way, for those of you who might not know, I can't imagine you don't know Ben Burgess. He's the host of the podcast, Give Them an Argument. It actually airs every Saturday. Um, and you share a Zoom link to it on your Twitter account, right, Ben? Uh, I have been doing that. Zoom has been getting a little annoying so uh, with the uh, the webinar features. So I switched to just doing like a uh, a YouTube stream for the uh, the patrons, and then it gets uh, it's edited, and and then it it comes uh, the like nice edited version premieres on YouTube on Mondays at seven thirty p.m. EST. Love it. All right, everyone, check out uh, Ben's Patreon page, and um, let's get to it. Let's talk about this debate. So okay, what 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 is uh, now? Do we know? Do we know what Whoopi thinks about what leftists should do in sports? Uh- <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about ensuring that we don't elect anyone that's going to increase our taxes like i remember yeah. the lead up to that interview with uh with bernie was just complaining about like mm, i worked hard for everything i have and why should i pay like higher taxes like that was really mm-hmm. the motivating factor in her line of questioning there but um unfortunately uh bernie sanders is not the democratic candidate uh that mm-hmm. was one of the more heartbreaking things that happened this year, and it's been a heartbreaking year overall. And so many leftists are, you know, trying to grapple with what to do next, right? What is the effective strategy moving forward? And there is a bit of a debate uh, amongst progressives on whether or not it makes sense to vote for Joe Biden, even as Joe Biden has refused to concede to some of the policy proposals that leftists desperately want, but more importantly, the country desperately needs. And so uh, Brianna Joy Gray, who was the national press secretary uh, for Bernie Sanders, uh, has launched a podcast. It's excellent. It's called Bad Faith. And on that podcast, she invited Noam Chomsky on to engage in this debate. So with that said, let's listen to the first clip. In the same way that voting blocks like unions have been able to coordinate masses of voters and deliver them to politicians in return for certain promises, that some portion of progressives, be they leftist, former Sanders supporters, young people, Black Lives Matter protesters, whatever collective group there is, could condition one's vote for Biden against Trump on Joe Biden delivering some goods the same way as the Sunrise Movement did. Now, let's take that position. Suppose you're one of these people. Do you intend to vote against Trump in November 3rd? Conditioned on whatever terms. Not conditioned. Suppose that your demands were not met. Would you vote against Trump? Then no. That's the, there's no persuasive value. There's no leverage if the vote is unconditional. You wouldn't vote against Trump. No, in this scenario, means, yeah. Right, which means you would help Trump win because not voting for one candidate, not voting for Biden, is equivalent to putting Trump one vote ahead. So your choice is, okay, if they don't do what I want, I'll essentially vote for Trump. I'll put Trump ahead. I don't think that's a wise decision. So, Ben, I want to toss to you immediately because I want to get your thoughts on, you know, both of their arguments. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that I think that Brianna is speaking to a really understandable um, kind of frustration. I, I mean, I think that I think it's important to to take that seriously and, and not like condescend to it or or, or scold, uh, uh, you know, or uh, people who who have those those hesitations uh, about 
about voting for uh, for Biden. But I mean, lay my cards on the table. I am basically on on Team Gnome here. Uh, I think that uh, I think that there are certain ways as the discussion goes on that that I'd make the argument a little bit differently. But but I think he lands in the right place. Uh, and I think one thing, like maybe just just as a starting point, you know, is that given the argument that she's making there, actually, um, you should like if, if what you really want to do is like have like maximum leverage, uh, then uh, then you should actually not just be voting for for like Howie Hawkins uh, in, in a swing state. You should be saying, hey, if we don't get what we want, we'll we'll vote for Trump. I mean, that would be the thing that would like actually be. The, the biggest threat uh, to uh, to to the Biden campaign uh, would be uh, would be directly voting for Trump. But of course, of course, they're not going to do that. Right. Brianna, Joy Gray and, and Virgil, Texas are never going to advocate that uh, because because they would never vote for, for Trump, which they shouldn't. Right. You know, that's uh, nobody should. Uh, but I think that I think that really what that exposes is that maybe there are two different things that get jumbled up in this argument. One of them is. Uh, this kind of tactical case that Brianna is pushing, uh, and the other is this sort of principled case that uh, that we can't vote for either Trump or Biden because because they they're both just so bad uh, that that neither of them should should be voted for. Uh, and I think that where I um, so so where I I kind of get off board from uh, from the way that the Chomsky is pushing back, even though like I said, I think he basically lands in the right place uh, is that the whole discussion uh, was sort of about this issue of how it is that you can pressure mainstream Democrats like Biden to move left. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty cynical about that. I, I actually think that that no matter what the left does, they're not going to meaningfully, meaningfully move left. I mean, at best they might say during a campaign that they'll do some of the things that we want. But I think if you can remember like the Obama administration and card check and all of that, I, even if they did, I wouldn't take it very seriously. I think that however you decide what the left strategy should be during the election, I don't think it should be based on any illusions that we can turn uh, we can turn like a, a corporate centrist like like Joe Biden into like a Bernie Sanders style social democrat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah, it's great point there. Go ahead, Nando. Well, I, I, it's interesting because, you know, uh, again, I think that you're right that you, you have to, like, unpack these arguments seriously and not, you know, not do like, oh, my God, can you believe, you know, all that kind of stuff is just like the most unhelpful, counterproductive thing. But I think that, you know, when she talks about um, the relationship that labor had to the Democratic Party, I mean, this is like this is not like a new debate, right? Like this mm-hmm. is something that uh, labor leaders have debated for decades, right? And, and there was, you know, there was, there were some labor leaders in the middle of the 20th century frustrated with the Democratic Party who some of them like broke rank kind of thing and, and support Republicans. And, and it was on, it was unclear that that actually um, had any meaningfully positive effects um, for labor. But, but the, my point about it is that for, for Brianna's um, kind of leverage argument to work, you need some sort of organizational mechanism to um, even begin to consider something like, you know, exercising demands and, and, and then kind of organizing as a block to, to do like without yeah. some organization like a labor oh. union, which we don't have, by the way, I mean, there's, yeah. there's there, no, totally. Like, and, like, yeah. Like, like so you, the, the preconditions are, are just not there is my, is, is what I'm, no, what I'm at, you know, like, yeah, that's absolutely right. Like this, I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of the way that a lot of liberals, 
will talk about how they're boycotting things when what they really mean is just that they're making individual consumer choices not to buy them. Right. You know, it's like, oh, you want to get this? No, I'm boycotting them. It's like, well, no, if it were a real boycott, you wouldn't start with the word I, right? You know, that like there's uh, like an actual boycott that could be effective would have to be right. like any of the historically effective boycotts, like the Montgomery bus boycott, you know, would uh, tend to be geographically concentrated. They're certainly, you know, well organized. You know, there's some sort of enforcement mechanism. Uh, right. Like it, it, it's it's not just a bunch of individuals, you know, deciding to make some consumer choice, which would, like you said, that'd be the equivalent of what Brianna is advocating there uh, is is just a bunch of individual leftists not making this decision. Uh, and presumably, I would I would guess that that what you want is for them to to vote for uh, for Howie Hawkins, the uh, the Green Party candidate, uh, especially like if they're just not voting at all, as Chomsky points out at several points of the debate, that all you're doing is you're just blending into the great mass of people who for all sorts of reasons don't vote. Uh, that that certainly doesn't send much of a message. But even if you think you're going to send a message by, by voting for Hawkins, which by the way, I should say, uh, I'm not going to because I'm voting in Michigan and, um, and, and that could go either way, you know, so I will hold my nose and, and vote for Biden. But if, you know, if I live like, look, if I lived where you guys do, I might vote for Hawkins because why not, right? I mean, no force on earth will, will mean that uh, right. will lead to uh, to Donald Trump getting California's electoral votes, uh, and and I think that it's I think that it's a reasonable. I don't think it's going to accomplish much. I don't think it could lead to an electorally viable third party, but I have no problem with it just as a as a protest. Uh, but I think it is really clear that that's that's all it is. And as far as um, as far as Brianna's leverage argument, I think that like the evidence is in, right? This isn't an untried experiment. In uh, 2000, right. uh, 3 million people voted for Ralph Nader uh, and the Nader vote in uh, in Florida famously was way bigger than, you know, at least the alleged uh, spread between, uh, between Bush and Gore. Uh, and the Democrats didn't respond to that by moving to the left and, uh, and you know, like nominating Dennis Kucinich or somebody in 2004, they nominated John Kerry. Uh, and uh, and they uh, and then uh, and then when 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 Kerry lost, you know, they like it, it like it, it just continued uh, like that. Like there's there's we've tried this experiment so many times, and and it never works. That like the the Democrats like will never conclude. Oh, a bunch of leftists voted for a third party, so therefore we have to become social democrats. To, to capture uh, to capture this 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 energy, you know, instead they'll just uh, score points by like hippie punching by by demonizing the left. Uh, the effect mm-hmm. is to is to discredit the left, and like that was like I mean honestly, the sort of way that Democrats would hold these like 1984 three minutes hate sessions about Ralph Nader, uh, you know, like was for was I think a major factor in suppressing the left for a very long time after 2000 and, and, and even in 2016, uh, there were swing States uh, like Michigan where the Jill Stein vote was bigger than uh, the uh, was, you know, significantly bigger in some cases than uh, the Trump Clinton gap. And, um, and then not only did the Democrats not move to the left, we got Joe Biden in 2020, who was the only one of the centrists who wasn't even pretending to, to latch on to even a modified version of uh, of big parts of the Bernie program, so I just don't think that would work. And to be clear, I don't have some alternate strategy for here's how we turn centrist Democrats into leftists. I just don't think we can do it. I don't think. I think that. I mean, I think that the what we have to do is just beat them in primaries. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right about that. And you know, it, it's. I think part of what 
frustrates me about this ongoing debate, because it is ongoing, mm. is that um, some on the left seem to think that we have leverage when we don't. Like there <laughs> is no leverage, right? We have no power right now. And I think it's important to be honest about that. I'm not trying to be defeatist. I'm trying to be honest so we can actually move forward from a place of reality as opposed to... Yeah, we have to, to be real about our dismal starting point, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And we have a dismal starting point par- partly because we're not we're not organized and we don't have um, a well-organized voting block that can, um, you know, use its leverage to, uh, you know, push for things that we need. And that's what we need to focus on organizing right now. I mean, that should be happening right now. Oh, yeah, and- t- totally. And, and, yeah, no, I was just going to say, like, it's, it's also not, um, I think we need to think hard about what it would actually mean to, to, to organize that, right? Because because the other argument, the one that Brianna's not making, but that sometimes people who are on that side of the argument would make is, oh, it's not about pushing the Democrats to the left. It's about creating this this third party that, that could that could compete in elections itself. And you know, what we really want is for uh some future, you know, Green Party candidate, you know, to to become president. But I think it's I think it's worth thinking about history and realizing that it never happens that way. Right. It's never going to happen that like Jill Stein's, you know, one percent of the vote becomes, you know, Howie Hawkins, two and a half percent of the vote. And then like you just keep pushing. And then like 20 cycles later, uh, you win like that. That's not how new parties emerge. Uh, if we ever if we ever did get an electorally viable third party in America, it would happen like the way that that Abraham Lincoln's Republican Party emerged, you know, uh, just kind of organically from the collapse of the Whigs, you know, their their anti-slavery wing, you know, kind of became a new party. Uh, and I don't know if that'll ever happen or not. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't I think that's just like a contingent, like historical question, but that is how it happened. And so if you actually want to get to the point where you could do either one of those things, like there's a great article in Jacobin from, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago by uh, Dustin Gostella. Uh, called like it or not, if we run third party, we'll lose. And he talks about this in there. And he says that like, sometimes we talk about this as if the difference between like taking over the democratic party, starting a third party, whatever, as if these were like strategies that we can pick and choose from, but that's not really the way it works. These are possible outcomes of a process. The process is building up the left, which right now, like it or not is happening in democratic primaries. And if we're if we're going to build up our own electoral force, it's I, I guess I just don't see any other way besides continuing to do that. So let's go to the next clip. Um, and in this in this video that you're about to watch, uh, Joy Gray argues that Biden just isn't doing what it takes to earn progressive votes. And she gives specific examples. If people are asking Joe Biden to do things that are electorally beneficial to him, if they're asking him to support policies like the Green New Deal that overwhelming majorities of Americans support, including a bipartisan, bipartisan majorities of Americans, and yet he still declines to adopt said policies. Yes, he moved someone on the Green New Deal. He went from a $1.7 trillion plan over 10 years to a $2 trillion plan over four years. And that is meaningful. Of course, it pales in comparison to the level of investment that many climate scientists say is absolutely necessary for us to meet the UN IPCC goals to actually getting where we need to be in terms of um, degree Celsius change. All of this is common ground, but it's missing. Point. Mm-hmm. The question is, what are you intending to do on November 3rd? If you say, and you mean what you're saying, if you don't mm-hmm. vote, uh, put Medicare for all on your program, 
I'm going to give a vote to Trump. If that's what you mean, say it, okay? Mm -hmm. And then what you're saying is, if I don't get what I want, I'm going to help the worst possible candidate into office. I think that's crazy. So I, I wanted to bring up um, a topic that I think is kind of lost in a lot of these discussions, and it's the topic of how uh, Joe Biden's campaign is influenced, funded, uh, who helps his campaign materially, right? Mm-hmm. And so here's what we're up against. On the left, we're dealing with people who are demoralized, frustrated, want concessions, but we're not organized. But on the right, you have these never Trump Republicans, uh, many of whom work on the Lincoln Project and put out these, to be fair, incredibly effective ads, you know, uh, attacking uh, Donald Trump on behalf of Joe Biden's campaign. I mean, when you think about how organized the right is, how organized uh, corporate politicians and the corporate wing of the Democratic Party is, and how all these individuals are helping the Biden campaign with real material goods. Again, we have to be real about where we are on the left and what we're up against. You know, I I think starting this conversation from a place of, um, you know, not really uh, understanding how little power we have and how, by the way, that's not to say we won't ever have power. We need to just come to terms with that and figure out how to accumulate power. Right. But if we don't, if we're not real with ourselves, I, I think that the conversation, the debate starts from a place of, I, I don't know, I don't want to use a, a, an insulting word because I really admire uh, Brianna and I get what she's saying, uh, but we just need to be real about where we're at. Totally, yeah. Like, like we right now, we're not in a position to to will an electorally viable third party into being, uh, you know, like like that's just not a thing that we have the capacity to to do right now. Uh, like you were saying, I think that's a really important point about the Lincoln Project and, and these kind of hideous, like, neocon, like, never Trump uh, Republican ghouls who, yeah, absolutely, to be real about this, will have about a thousand times more influence in the Biden administration than we will, um, that, you know, we're not in a position to, uh, we're not we're not in a position to start an electorally viable third party, we're not in a position to exercise some sort of leverage that would even extract, like, uh, pretend concessions during an election, which, you know, um, like most good things that Democrats say during elections probably wouldn't happen, never mind like real meaningful uh, movement to the left, you know, uh, that that just can't happen right now. Uh, so so the question is, what are we in a position to do? And I think what we are in a position to do is to, in some swing states uh, where it could actually go either way and where a small number of, of leftists could actually make a difference, um, if, uh, you know, if we know that the leverage thing isn't going to work and look, don't get me wrong. I, I think that there could be circumstances in which it might be worth taking huge risks if there's a potentially huge payoff. But right now I just don't see what the possible payoff is to taking that risk that Chomsky's talking about at the end, end of the clip. I, I, I don't see what we get out of it. Uh, so what we are in a position to do is at least make this kind of defensive maneuver so that, we can we can give ourselves more time to get our act together, uh, and and I want to be really clear about what I mean by that because I'm not trying to do some kind of like cheap apocalyptic like oh if Trump is reelected we're all gonna you know uh, Jack and it's gonna be closed down we're all gonna be in concentration camps or something like that I don't I don't think any of that is likely true but uh, 
But I think that a phrase that doesn't get used nearly enough uh, when the left debates this is the NLRB, right? National Labor Relations Board, uh, because I think that in terms of what's concretely at stake in the election, that's huge. Uh, that uh, if you look at Trump's appointees to the NLRB, they have uh, they have overturned a bunch of precedents from the Obama administration and earlier. Every time they overturn a precedent, it's always uh, in favor of bosses and against workers every single time. Uh, the a bunch there was an article in New York Times the other day about how a bunch of uh, people in, in Trump's cabinet are trying desperately to push through all these regulatory changes before January 20th when they figure their guy is probably leaving office. And the regulatory changes were all things like making it easier to reclassify people as independent contractors so you don't have to bargain with them. Uh, and so I think that I think we can be real about the fact that Biden is not and never will be our friend. Uh, that these are both, you know, to maybe put it dramatically, but I think accurately, these are both enemies of the working class. But we can still make a tactical decision about which enemy we want to fight with, about which issues for the next four years. And even though they are both, you know, representatives of the other side, I think that they represent very different strategies for managing the system on behalf of capital. And that the strategy that Trump is employing is really about trying to stamp out what's left of organized labor in the United States, uh, whereas maybe like a centrist Democrat like Biden would do more like the kind of thing that Obama did, maybe pass trade deals that decrease the bargaining power of industrial unions, maybe try to co-opt them in some ways, but he's really not going to try to stamp them out the same way. So given that we are starting in such a weak, weak point, I think one thing that would be really good to think more about is – if it's going to take another five years, 10 years, you know, who knows, right, for the left to really get its act together and really build up to where we need to, is that process going to be easier or harder if, like, the Trump uh, Trump administration has succeeded in stamping out public sector unions? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working my way through Reaganland, Rick Perlstein's book about the, you know, the 1976 to 1980, essentially. And, you know, honestly, as I'm reading it, um, I, I like I, I, I find myself more sympathetic to the the argument that that a Trump victory might be uh, beneficial in the long run. I mean, Reagan uh, challenged a sitting president in his own party uh, in the 1976 presidential con- uh, Republican National Convention and then basically tanked the Ford campaign to allow Jimmy Carter to win and then four years later took over the party and the rest is history, as as they say. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's, the, it's, it's what, you know, kind of that side of the argument is advocating like someone like Bernie should have done, which was, you know, maybe tank, um, uh, you know, the, the Joe Biden campaign and, you know, and then maybe four years from now, someone can emerge uh, or Bernie himself, whatever, who, and, you know, so I'm like, I'm looking at that. And I'm like, man, uh, you know, they, they that, that happened on the other side. Um, maybe like it could happen now. I think that, I think there's some, some of the conditions at the time were, were definitely different. Um, I mean, for one, for starters, Carter, uh, it was ba- one of the more right-wing Democrats to have come along in, 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 a, in a good while, um, was, did not pose as much of a threat to the Republican uh, parties or interests as, as I think Trump would to a, uh, you know, the interests of like the left or labor or whatever. Um, and then the other thing I'm thinking about is like uh, the, the sort of the rightward shift of the Democratic Party that we all kind of bemoan and we all, mm. and we all fr- are rightly frustrated by that we keep doing the same thing and we can't break the wheel is not... Um, is not limited to the United States. This is true 
um, in all the Western democracies, essentially, is that there. So that it, starts, it strikes me that there's something deeper going on beyond kind of the decision to vote for them or not. Mm. Um, and I, I'm, I'm again, I'm trying to like work through the argument on air, which is not never a good idea. But um, I'm just trying to talk it out and, and see, like, because there's, I think that the the argument in the debate is an interesting one, and we should and we should have it. I I just don't. I still I still find myself unconvinced that former years of Trump is going to be beneficial to us. Like at the end of the day, like that's just what I can't get past that former years of Trump is, is, is going to be a better thing than no, I think whatever that's the yeah. alternatives. I just can't bring myself to that. I don't know. Maybe I'm like my limited imagination or something, <laughs> you know, think about how um, many, how many federal judges he was able to um, nominate and get confirmed uh, during his first term. Uh, three Supreme Court judges. I know that Amy Coney Barrett isn't officially confirmed. She's going to be confirmed. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And if, if they that's, have to wheel, that's devastating like, to of... our cause moving forward. Like it just is. Yeah. It just is. Um, I'm <laughs> fearful. And it that kills even one of the Democrats' if... classic arguments, right? It's like the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. and then like you know, and then they don't do anything. To stop yeah, it. no, for sure. Yeah, Especially I know. There's, there's no way in hell Biden actually packs the the court. That's never going to happen, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, um, but yeah, no, right for sure. Amy Coney Barrett will be on the Supreme Court. I think. I think even if like a bunch of Republican senators get COVID and they have to like wheel their ventilators into the Senate chamber to to vote to confirm her, uh, they will do that. Uh, so, so I, I think that that's that's happening. That's over. Uh, but no, I mean, I don't think. I mean, I, I think one thing that when people because I hear this argument all the time uh, from from people who are on uh, the Brianna Joy Gray Virgil Texas side of this argument that oh. Um, it's actually going to be better for us uh, if uh, not that they made this this argument on bad faith, but you know they'll say it's actually going to be better for us if we get uh, four more years of of Trump. Uh, that'll be better than like eight years of Biden or you know whatever two years of Biden mm-hmm. and six years of Harris, whatever we're looking at, because then we can like try again in twenty twenty four. And and I think that just the recent historical evidence really makes me think it's not going to work that way. Uh, it's, it's not going to work like like Reagan in uh, in seventy six, and you know, I mean, I'm not. I think I'm I'm very slowly working through the audiobook of Reagan Land while I'm like taking the dog on walks, and I'm still in like nineteen seventy seven. So you know, I, I don't know the whole, you know, but I know how it ends. Uh, I I don't uh, I don't think it's going to work that way, and I think that to see why it's not going to work that way, think about why Bernie lost this time. I mean, I know obviously he didn't lose for any one reason. Uh, and maybe if the centrist hadn't consolidated at the last minute the way that they did, uh, maybe he he would have pulled it off anyway. But I think the question is, why were so many people willing to vote for Biden in the first place? Uh, we know it's not because they agreed with his policies, because all the polls uh, from from primary states showed that most most people uh, in all the states that went to, to Biden supported things like Medicare for All and Green New Deal. Uh, so the reason is that they were desperate to go back to normal because they perceive Trump as such an apocalyptic threat. And I think if we had eight years of Trump, uh, I think that I don't think a candidate like Bernie would get as far as he did in, in 2020. I think the longing of democratic voters to go back to normal would just be totally off the charts. Uh, and I don't think people are grappling with that enough. And then I think they like what you were saying, Nando, about how this is not just a U.S. phenomenon. Like, you know, there's obviously some similarity between what's going on in the U.S. and what's going on in a lot of other countries. I think that like a more global problem, like if you look at like Jeremy Corbyn's loss in the last uh, UK general election, 
um, you know, is, or, you know, other cases, I, th- I think around the world is that right now this kind of like resurgent social democratic left that's manifesting and stuff like Bernie Sanders and, and Jeremy Corbyn, uh, it, it has a base of support and it has like a lot, a much bigger portion of the population that like likes its proposals, even if it's not necessarily married to those candidates or, or, or movements. Uh, but I think that right now uh, there's a, like we're having a hard time convincing the people that we need because we don't have a majority who really align with those movements that we're the best bet for, for fighting back against this kind of uh, globally ascendant right-wing populism. A lot of people think that the best bet for that is just Joe Biden style uh, liberalism. And I think that the, just about the worst thing we could do is, I mean, and don't get me wrong. I'm sure no matter what we do, if Biden loses, they'll blame it on us because that's what they do. But, uh, mm-hmm. but I think that the, I think that like the worst thing Bernie, for example, could have done just brass tacks is to give them ammunition for that by yeah. like telling people to vote for Howie Hawkins or whatever, because like that would just be the story forever. You know that like oh look at look at how Bernie gave us a uh, a second Trump term, and I think that would be a really effective way of of pushing back. And I think some people, when they say, oh, Bernie Sanders is, is super popular, so he could have done that. And then, like, you know, everybody would have flocked to Howie Hawkins or whoever. You know who is incredibly popular at the end of the 20th century? Ralph Nader. He was like a widely beloved figure. There were there were polls back in 2000 showing that uh, that um, that like there were there was a huge percentage of the population that like he would have been their first choice for president. And since then, he's just been been a punchline and 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 like a and like a demonization object uh, for uh, for Florida in, in 2000. And so, I guess I mean, look, I agree with everything that Brianna says in the clip about how if Biden loses, it's his own damn fault and all that stuff. I mm-hmm. mean, yes, right, preach, absolutely. But uh, I I'm super skeptical that that if we try this kind of third party strategy, uh, that it the same thing isn't going to happen again. And and since we're, you know, talking about Bernie Sanders and the decisions that he made, um, you know, he has uh, done some campaigning, a lot of campaigning uh, for the Biden campaign. And um, just this week, uh, we had a pretty lengthy interview with him over at the Young Turks. And I asked about this very debate, uh, but I, I framed it more on not who should we vote for, but more importantly, when do we apply pressure toward the Biden campaign? And uh, take a look at this exchange. Uh, This is the last clip, Kale. I think we have got to do everything. You know, you have all of two and a half weeks. That's not a long time. Let us do everything that we can to make sure that everybody we know comes out to vote. Cenk, you mentioned that the polls look good. They do. They look good for Hillary Clinton as well. So anyone who thinks that Biden is a shoe and is dead wrong, this is going to be a tough race. And we got to do everything we can in the next two and a half weeks to win it. Day after Biden wins, let us rally the American people, working class people, people of color, young people, all people who believe in justice around a progressive agenda. And remember, you know, Biden campaigns on his proposals, that's fine. But it is the United States Congress that makes the laws of this country. And what we have got to do after the election, after the election, is to make sure that we put as much pressure as we can on the elected officials in the House and the Senate to go forward with an agenda that has the guts to stand up to the ruling elite 
that deals with income and wealth inequality. And that finally has a government that works for all of us and not just the few. So uh, I love that answer. Uh, although, you know, on our show, we still continuously uh, go after Biden when it's yeah. appropriate, you know, and no, when I, I say I, appropriate, when he goes in the wrong direction with his policy proposals. Uh, but I will say I was actually shocked this week when Biden came out with his proposal on coronavirus and he mentioned, uh, you know, an FDR like strategy in order to combat the virus, basically creating public health jobs uh, that would be tasked with testing and tracing. Um, I don't have all the details in front of me right now, but I found that surprising because really at this moment, Biden has no reason to pander to mm. the left in any way, shape or form. Uh, but it does seem like he is. Uh, genuinely interested in uniting the country and doing something, even if for the left it's small, something for um, almost every ideology. I mean, there have been policy proposals that are pretty right wing, um, some policy proposals that you would expect from a standard corporate Democrat. And this coronavirus proposal was shockingly good uh, from a, a left perspective. Yeah, I mean, if, if he actually does that, that's fantastic. Uh, I, I guess I just think that that especially if, if we're trying to um, to to reach out to people who who might be on the Virgil Texas you know Brianna Joy Gray side of this argument, I think that I think that they're going to be super skeptical of of anything that you know say oh Biden is going to do this this good thing that if yeah. uh, if if he's elected, and I don't think that's entirely irrational. I mean Obama said yeah. lot, lots of stuff in two thousand eight that would have been great if it had happened. Uh, but but that didn't really happen, right? So I I totally get that, right? I, I think that we, I think that I'd love to be surprised by this. I would I would love for for you know Biden to actually carry out some of these some of these good proposals that that he's made during during the campaign. I suspect that when the rubber meets the road and there's the inevitable corporate resistance mm -hmm. to a lot of this stuff, uh, that that they're not going to invest a lot of political capital into it. That's going to be kind of the same story as like card check with Obama or the public option with Obama. Uh, but uh, but I think that I guess I guess my only point would be that even if we make the most pessimistic worst case scenario prediction uh, that none of the good stuff that Biden says is going to happen uh, that that his uh, that that like the worst parts of his career are really going to you know like really going to be the preview of what his presidency is going to like that the that the neocon never Trumpers you know are are, are really going to be in the saddle. Uh, then it still makes sense to me to to make this this tactical vote and and I and I do think that it I think that you should go after Biden all the time. Like one of the things that most frustrates me about this debate uh, is that it's so often cast as a debate between people saying Biden's not that bad and people saying uh, we should vote third party <laughs> in swing states. Uh, and I don't think those are the only options. I think that's a false dilemma. I think that I think that we should think of it more like. Um, uh, like, uh, I remember Adolf Reed had a, uh, had an article in 2016 called, uh, vote for the line neoliberal warmonger. It's important, uh, where, uh, where he used the analogy of, of this election, uh, in Louisiana where, um, David Duke actually got the Republican nomination for, I want to say governor. I'm not sure, but in any case, uh, he, and then there was this like comically corrupt, a Democrat who's running against him. And so there are people who actually had like lawn signs that said, vote for the crook. It's important. 
uh, or or like the the attitude of like the French left when there have been these run like they have they have these two stage elections the top two vote getters get into runoffs and so there have been times when the runoff is somebody like in 2002 uh, it was Jacques Chirac who was the justly hated conservative incumbent uh, running off against uh, Jean Marie Le Pen who is an actual fascist uh, and um, and so there were French socialists and communists who were doing things like uh, like bringing rubber gloves and, and clothes hangers to put on their noses, you know, when, uh, when they went to vote for Chirac, you know. So, like, I, I really like I don't know. That just seems so much healthier, you know, that like you don't have to lie about who and what Biden is, but you can but you can still, yeah. you know, you, you can still say, look, we can make this tactical choice about which enemy we'd rather fight with, but we don't have to be dishonest to do that. Yeah, I got. I yeah. got to say, I was surprised at Chomsky's. I mean, seeming naivete about like he's like, well, take a look at his proposals on climate change. They're they're pretty good, you know. And it's like they're far to the left of like anyone. And it's like, I I, I have no. That's just. It seems like a very odd thing to like believe. Just like you know, oh, it's it's on the website. You know, uh, that yeah. means it's going to happen. I think that yeah, I, I agree with you that it, inevitably, like there's as this first sign of resistance, like that's just going to go out the window. Um, mm-hmm, but like mm-hmm. talking about the, the coronavirus, uh, plan or proposal for it. I mean, I, I'm all, I, 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 I've, I, I don't believe any of any of it, but what I do believe is that, and, and this was like important in my kind of, um, you know, trajectory or whatever on this question is like, um, I do believe that in general, a Biden administration or just like a standard, whatever Democrat uh, administration would have a sort of m- better Comp- a more competent sort of more, more competent technocratic management of over something like the yeah. coronavirus um, pandemic. Like, look, the Obama administration. Too- sorry to interrupt you, but I have to no, say no, no. this: like, the Obama administration failed on so many different issues, but there were, uh, you know, some. The way they managed the Ebola outbreak was actually mm. very good, right? And so mm. I know for a fact that Biden is not going to politicize mask wearing. Right. Biden is not going to intentionally downplay the severity of the virus uh, in order to protect Wall Street. Right. I mean, he might protect Wall Street in other ways. But I do genuinely believe that on a number of incredibly important issues, uh, Biden will take it seriously. He, he's definitely not going to go as far to the left as we would like that. that there's no question about that. Yeah. And I agree with you. I don't believe that he's actually going to carry out FDR style policies. But I I. In putting out that policy, what he's doing is signaling that he understands the severity of the situation. And we need that because right now we have a clown who has no empathy. He's sociopathic, does not value or care about human lives. And that's that's what I'm concerned about. Like we need to get him out and have someone with like a pulse and and some understanding of the value of human lives in, in that office rather than this. Honestly, Trump ended up being far worse than even I expected. And, you know, during the 2016 election, it was a wild card situation, right? Like, of course, people suspected that he'd be awful, but you didn't know how awful. So people were willing to take that risk in order to basically send a giant middle finger to the establishment. And I get that. But we've had four years. We're now close to 220,000 dead Americans during this pandemic. 
And I think uh, it would be shameful to draw these false equivalencies between Trump and Biden. They are different candidates. And I do think that Biden would do far better on a number of important issues. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Mitt Romney probably would have had better technocratic management of the coronavirus. Totally. Yeah, I mean that that's that that to me like I mean the, I think the the feeling I mean obviously like I, I believe that you know American institutions uh, have been so hollowed out by neoliberalism that it would be difficult even for like the most bu- brilliant bureaucratic manager of this of the state to to deal with something like the pandemic I think that the the rot goes much deeper than just the management of of the person at the top um but the but the like the, I mean just watching like the Trump administration's handling of the coronavirus pandemic is mean, so it's like it's been so comically bad you know tr- like uh, that yeah yeah it's, it's I mean, hard I mean, to my... imagine almost anyone doing a worse job on that front specifically and it's it's gonna be like a thing that's with us for a long time like that's that's I mean I, I yearn for like the bare minimum of competence to handle this issue that is just like. It, uh, the, the ever-present issue in our lives right now. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that, it, it could not be more ridiculous, like how uh, how mismanaged it, it's it's been. Right, I, I remember, you know, my my little brother uh, lives in LA, works in the entertainment industry, you know, and, and so he probably more likely to think of these terms. He sent me like the night that uh, Trump got COVID. You know, he sent me a text message like, "God, whoever's writing 2020 is such a lazy hack." You know, like this is ridiculous. You know, like as a plot twist. Oh yeah, of course Trump himself gets coronavirus. Uh, and by the way, like gave it to a bunch of donors. You know, so uh, like which which really, I mean, really really speaks to the point, right? That I'm I'm sure. Like I think you're 100 percent right, Nando. Like there are like much larger reasons why uh, American institutions have failed. Uh, in in meeting the challenge, but I also think that failure comes in degrees, uh, and and that it's 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 hard to imagine anybody else uh, messing it up quite this badly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, let's do our salt segment, and then we'll take a few of your questions in the super chat. Um, ben, w- would you mind staying with us to do sure. our salt yep. segment? Okay, great. Um, so I thought it was important to bring up the fact that Diane Feinstein is the worst. Uh, she sucks and nothing made that clearer than the way she handled the confirmation hearing for Amy Coney Barrett. Now, prior to the confirmation hearings beginning, uh, there were Democrats, like I'm talking about establishment Democrats who were voicing their concern that Senator Feinstein was not up for the challenge, that she would bungle this. And she certainly did bungle it, especially when you consider that Democrats wanted to really emphasize how they felt that this was a sham uh, confirmation hearing, a sham process, given what happened to Merrick Garland, uh, you know, during the last year of Obama's uh, term. And so, look, this is what came out of the confirmation hearing. Everyone's been talking about it. Here's Dianne Feinstein, um, you know, showing some love to her fellow Republican, Senator Lindsey Graham. A maskless hug. Uh, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham and the ranking member, Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein, hugging today at the end of the Judiciary Committee hearing for Judge Amy Coney uh, Barrett. Surprising for a couple reasons. Um, one of them being a lot of Democrats don't think Feinstein has been uh, strong enough on this issue. Yeah, and one of the groups, an activist group, Demand Justice, that has spent money to 
oppose Amy Coney Barrett's nomination, actually put out a statement demanding that Feinstein be removed from atop the committee proceedings. She praised Lindsey Graham through at the end of the hearing before that maskless hug. She said that the that Graham has been fair. She said, well, this is one of the best hearings that I have participated in. And this comes as Democrats have tried to portray this process in their view as a sham process. So, uh, (laughs) look, before we chime in, let me just note that uh, this has already been used their advantage. Uh, In fact, the uh, Senate GOP account on Twitter put together this cutesy video that I want to share with you all. Let's take a look. Mr. Chairman, I just want to thank you. Uh, This has been one of the best set of hearings that I've participated in. And I want to thank you for your fairness. And it leaves one with a lot of hopes. Thank you so much for your leadership. (laughs) It's just... um... I mean, I think I think like when when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, something like half a billion dollars flowed into Democratic Party like contributions from regular people who were like terrified and, and horrified. I mean, it's just and then they just like were like they took the money and then we're like, yeah, we're just gonna do nothing, like literally nothing. Yeah, like, well, we're gonna help the Republicans. Like we're <laughs> and I get it. I mean, it's not it as though uh, Democrats really had much leverage in this whole process anyway. Um, but like they, it just. There was no fight, like 0%. Like, in the very least, for all those people who spent their hard-earned money um, on trying to influence this process, I guess. Like, in the very least, like, pretend to fight. Like, they can't even do that. Because, like, Diane Feinstein doesn't care to fight. Like, she doesn't care to fight about anything. Like, she's good. She's doing well. Her husband's doing well based on policies that she's passed that help to benefit the real estate industry um, in the country. Like she is so far removed from the daily struggles of average Americans. The way she spoke to children from the Sunrise Movement on the issue of climate change, she does not care. She never has. She never will. She especially doesn't care. She's 87 years old. And I'm not trying to be like some ageist, but she's not worried about climate change destroying her life. She's not worried about protecting reproductive rights. She's not worried about uh, how Amy Coney Barrett, something that I think isn't discussed enough, is going to help pass down pro-corporate rulings in the Supreme Mm -hmm. Court that will harm workers for decades to come. She doesn't care about any of that. She's so far removed from our daily struggles. Yeah, totally. Uh, and, and by the way, I'm glad that you mentioned that about Amy Comey Barrett, right? Because I, I think that like a lot of people have been way too fixated on like this sort of weird, like ultra Catholic stuff with, with, with Barrett and, you know, the people of praise or whatever. And I get it. It's like really luridly crazy, you know, like they use words like handmaiden and, you know, fair enough. Right. But like, I don't think that's the big problem, right? Like I think in like when it comes to stuff like abortion, uh, her, her politics and, and, and her, religious views like come together but she's it's not like she's like making all of these like pro-corporate anti-worker rulings about economic issues because like the pope told her to do that right i mean that's not the problem right the problem isn't the people of praise part of her background it's like the federalist society part yeah absolutely it's also just it's 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 one of the things that's like so ingrained in in democrats is that it's if you can't win a fight, it's better to just not fight. 
it. You know what I mean? Um, they don't understand the idea of like dragging something out, making political hay out of something, even if you ultimately lose, you know, on the, on the, like on the narrow issue that it is at, at play. This is like true of the confirmation of Amy Comey Barrett, but like so many other things as well. Um, they don't understand that they could like make an issue out of it, that they have the power to like make more of an issue out of it. Like it's like, it was weird how in a way, like how just not in like Amy Comey Barrett thing, like wasn't that, it wasn't that prominently, you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like plastered everywhere. It wasn't, you know, like they, they, they were just like, they made the calculation that like, Oh, look, they have the votes. So it's going to happen. So we might as well, just not not fight out of it and that's a that's a view that republicans don't take you know they often will fight something out to the bitter bitter end even though they know maybe ultimately they'll lose they just want to you know they they want to get as much uh, you know make make it as much of an issue as possible uh um, yeah, totally right like, just think about benghazi mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> true it's true We're like, like ten thousand symbolic votes to repeal obamacare uh, right. like, like when they couldn't right. actually do it, you know? Yeah, no, totally. Like it's, it's, and, it, and it's so de- like, even just on like a, like cynical level, like just about winning the election, like it's, 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 yeah. I, I mean, it's like, God, wouldn't you at least want to show your voters that you're trying? Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Like that, you know, that, that, you know, showing some fight might like get people like, you know what, maybe like, you know, they're actually on, you know, like, and it's like, they don't even, they don't even do that. Like they don't even do that yeah. bare minimum of it it's it's really shocking and look that i think that that is part of trump's appeal uh for his base right because regardless of what he does he at least gives the appearance of fighting on their behalf yeah. and they love that yeah, he's good at and, that you yeah. know he is he's really good at that um yeah. all right so i we I want to leave enough time to answer some questions from the super chats. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. This was a great conversation. Everybody check out uh, his podcast. Give them an argument. Um, every Saturday happens. Uh, you go live at what time? I want to make sure I get. Oh, okay. Right so, so it's, it's, uh, it's recorded every Saturday from, uh, from four, from four to six. So if you want to, um, if you want to like sit in on the recording, uh, you can do that by, by joining the Patreon or if you, you know, if you don't have the five bucks, trust me, I've been there. Uh, you could just you can just send me a DM, and you know, and I'll hook you up with the uh, the link. But then the nice edited version goes out as a podcast on on Monday, and then uh, and then premieres on YouTube uh, at seven thirty p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So thank you guys so ben. much. Thank you, uh, Ben. Real, real, really good conversation. Uh, I'm, you know, I managed to restrain my my anger with Nando about uh, the fact that uh, it's it's been so long since so he put out a new episode of his Entourage podcast. So like, I, know, I, I don't have I know. that in my life right now. But, I know. Uh, sorry. That's okay. All right. Apology I, I actually have an interview in the can <laughs> that I need to edit, and it's just I haven't I haven't had time to do it. All right. You know, but I will. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, right. guys. Have a good one, Ben. Take it easy. All right. Kale. All righty, Kale, come in, baby. Coming in hot. Kale, you're on mute or something. That happens all the I, time. Yeah, you're the producer of the show. <laughs> hey, the I'm not very good at my wizard. job. Thanks. <laughs> uh, hey, guys, can you hear me now? How's it going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. we can hear you. Cool. Um, yeah, no, that was great. Uh, I mean, Ben's always great. I love working with Ben. Yeah. And um, yeah. Pe- people have super chat Gentle questions. Uh, if people have super chat questions, you should put them in the the live chat. There are We already got a couple, so... And there's a couple that are similar that I kind of want to aggregate together. Um, sure. 
and because um, they're kind of asking a similar question and mm-hmm. you know attacking different uh, facets of it. But um, definitely mm-hmm. send us more questions, and we'll try to get to them. And also hit like and subscribe. Yeah, hit Let subscribe. Let me put my hair up for this. <laughs> like, you know, just get get ready, get ready to get grilled. That's right. Just yeah. crack the knuckles. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but so there's a couple that, uh, let's see. So first one is, do any of you have any ideas for progressives getting power or taking over the Democratic Party? And then there was another one saying that uh, Chomsky was right. The establishment wants us to think we have no power besides voting. The massive Black Lives Matter protests didn't bring real change. The planet and mm. workers don't have decades. Do we need a general strike? That's kind of uh, the question at the end of that. And someone else was asking, if the left has no power, why would Biden have to agree to anything we want? I'm optimistic, but the left uh, will move him left. Um, so it's kind of a... I wanted to lump yeah. them all together because it's this general question of, like, how yeah. does the left actually <laughs> take power? <laughs> and so yeah. I have thoughts, but I wanted to throw it to you guys first. Well, okay. So one thing, one thing that I think actually has been... Um, pretty effective and we need more of it like so after the 2016 election as we know um a lot of progressive candidates started primarying uh incumbent democrats and the democratic party absolutely hates that they want to protect especially their corporate uh incumbent democratic members um but you know i I was worried that the AOCs and the Ilhan Omars and the Rashida Tlaibs of the world, like it, there was one wave and then one wave only. And we wouldn't see more progressive candidates uh, elected. But in this election cycle, you know, you have uh, Cory uh, Bush, you have Jamal Bowman. I mean, we need to have more representation in Congress. And so we need to encourage more leftists to run. And you're probably going to lose if you have no name recognition. But if you keep running, you keep doing it again and again and again, you build a name for yourself and eventually you win. One of the biggest enemies of of winning is lack of name recognition, right? But if you go out there and you really put yourself out there and you want to represent the best interests of your constituents, eventually you will win. And I think it's important to organize in that regard as well. I also agree that a general strike would be highly effective. I mean, you're you're threatening capital. Um, and once you start messing with people's money, I think it's easier to get concessions. Uh, but you have to organize something like that. Yeah, there's a there's a very good Jacobin debate uh, on YouTube between Richard Yeselson and Dustin Guastella about this very issue. And I encourage everyone to, to watch it. It's like very long and, and they, they, they kind of unpack every single angle of it. Um, I mean, I think that... I mean, on 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 one level, like I think that the immediate future is like incredibly bleak. I just I I I, I really I really do struggle to 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 work up a sense of like anything other than that. You know, the pathways to power are so limited. I just don't see them as as very um, uh, as, as as viable in, in the short run. Um you know, obviously that doesn't mean you just give up and go home. I mean, it's, it's, you can't do that either. Um, so the question is, what do you do? I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't share Chomsky's sunny view of, of, of the potential Biden administration. Um, I think that, that it's going to be incredibly hostile to, to the left. And so I, I think that in general, um, 
I, I think it's really important for there to be some sort of Bernie Krat to flip a red district somewhere. Like if that happened, I think that that would I think that that would be a that would open up a lot of possibilities. It hasn't really happened yet. Um, like all the sort of the Bernie Kratz, the AOCs and stuff have won in kind of blue districts. Um, if they flip a red district, that would be that would be tremendous. I mean, and, and I think that the left should be trying to identify um uh, a red district that is kind of ripe for some sort of takeover like this. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, cause I, again, like what, what is there, what avenues are there? I mean, I, I like, you know, the, I don't, I, I, I haven't been convinced by any sort of left anti electoral politics arguments. Like what other avenues to power are there, um, beyond like, I mean, it's like revolution or electoralism. Like, what are you going to do? You know, you, you, we're not going to do a revolution. Like, come on, like they, they have so many more guns at this point and, <laughs> and there's nothing to be done there. Um, so, and, and, and then the other thing is like <laughs> labor unions. I don't know. How do you, how, like, that has to be, that has to be a focus that has to be the focus. I mean, it's just, it's the only way to exercise any real power is through labor unions. I can't think of any other way to do it, you know, it's, it's, and how, so then how do you, how do you capitalize on some of the sort of increased militancy we're seeing from some labor unions? How do we, um, how do we, how do we expand that? I mean, it's just the only way and and there probably has to be some sort of localized um, effort for it in some, again, some place where it's ripe to happen. There's like, if there was some, some large um, new labor union that, that, that could, you know, get some meaningful, um, victories like that, that would, would obviously change the, the terrain on which we're, we're fighting on. But like the terrain right now is just so, is so bleak. I mean, I just, it, it, and I, I don't know what the, what the real kind of answer is. I don't know. Kay, what do you think? Right. Well, I mean, part of this, part of the answer to this is that the left has in the fact, in, in the past actually won that we have successfully build movements that we actually have taken power in societies. Now, we've, you know, I would argue, and some people in the Jacobin crowd might disagree, but, you know, we haven't seen socialism yet, right? Like, Mm -hmm. this is an ongoing fight that's been, we've been a part of for over 200 years. We haven't Mm -hmm. gotten to our end goal, but there are plenty of lessons from the past. And whether it's uh, the social democratic parties in Europe, whether it's, uh, communist parties, the communist party in the U S in the thirties, uh, mm-hmm. organizing, uh, workers, um, in their workplaces, both industrial workers, but also, you know, there's great history of organizing agricultural workers in the South. Um, yeah. I think ultimately, you know, electoralism in and of itself is undoubtedly a dead end for the left because, yeah. Like and this goes back to the debate uh, with Chomsky and, and Bree a moment ago, that we're dealing with, uh, you know, there's a debate on the left of the state and capitalism, the capitalist state. The point is, yeah. is that the government, the state, like it's dependent on uh, revenue. It's dependent on taxation coming from businesses, from corporations, yeah. and both from their income tax and everyone else's income tax, and. Uh, and fundamentally, if employers, if capitalists don't like the politics of a cer- certain government, they can just disinvest in the economy. They can, um, tons of financial tricks of, uh, of jacking up prices. And the point is that 
because the state is the one making the political decisions and the capitalists are the ones that own all of the productive things that uh, the working class is actually dependent on, that they have to be employed by, uh, if capitalists say, screw you guys, uh, we're not going along with this, this regime, uh, they can destroy uh, a political project, they can destroy an electoral project overnight. And so fundamentally, and, and we have the most evil ruling class in human history right now that genuinely is driving us over the cliff of climate change. Like, yeah. like because they have to, because they have to constantly look after their profits. Like, they mm-hmm. have to be so, like, short-term about their politics that it's going to kill us all. And not their, just not just their politics, but their, actual, their bottom line, right? Yeah. So I think fundamentally... You know, the question about do we need a general strike? Of course we need one, but, I, you know, and I'm, of course, encouraging, you know, if that is on the, you know, on the agenda or if that is on the menu, per se, in the future, then absolutely. But uh, like we, like uh, you two just said, I mean, it's, it comes down to organizing. And so, mm-hmm. you know, having uh, socialists organizing with working class people, like, you know, uh in the actual hubs of where capital is accumulating. So like in this part of the, in my part of the country near New York, it's like Newark where all the Amazon factories are, right? Like it's the, the electoral campaigns are wins and they're great, but we should think of them as like the squad and, and the Bernie campaigns have done tremendous work to developing left politics and left ideas and left culture and left infrastructure in this country but it, I think it has to be seen as a booster rocket that like, mm-hmm. if we do not translate this in the next 10 years into organizing actual working people, uh, it's, it's done. We like, you know, we just become one of the other 900 uh, left groups that have failed over the last 200 years, because most of the time yeah. we fail, like we lose, like that's, yeah. that's the thing. And so it's the electoral campaigns, do them good, move forward with that, uh, win as many as you can, you know, at the same time, like it's a means to an ends of actually organizing working class people. Yeah. And just one more, I want to say one more thing on the, on the debate. Um, cause this question of, you know, part of what Brie was bringing up with, with Chomsky is how do you actually talk to, for instance, uh, a black person and tell them yeah. to vote for, for Biden? And I presume she's yeah. talking about working class black people because middle class black people and elite black people have absolutely no qualms with the yeah, Democratic they're on board. Party. Yeah, no, they I mean, they might they might, you know, disagree with things here or there, but more or less, it's fine. Like working class black people, just like all working class people. To me, the question is not why do they vote for the Democrats or why do they vote for the Republicans? It's why are they voting at all? Why would yeah. a working class person in America vote at all? What's the point of voting? Like, yeah. well, many of I them think you don't. should. I mean, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Most of them don't vote. And half of it's yeah. because they're not able to because they can't get off work. And half of them don't see the point. And so I think, you know, I'm, if you can vote and you're thinking, if you're watching this show, you should go vote, whatever. Like, and if you're in a blue state, like if you're in New York, California, vote for Howie. Uh, that's fine. But the point is, is that like for most working class people, like the left has to start filling this void of why is it that we have a completely defunct political system? And so 
if you can get them to vote for Biden to get rid of Trump, great. But like that is such a minuscule part of yeah. your political activity in the world as a leftist, as a socialist. Yeah. And and so I think we just have we have to keep the long game in mind. Like yeah. get get rid of and Trump look, and then think about where we're going. Yeah, and look, one final thing I'll say about this is um like I get I get pretty grossed out at the like tut tut I'm judging you how dare you uh say that you're not going to vote for Biden rhetoric. Like I can't stand it. Um the conversation that we had today wasn't about uh people voting based on their principles. It was strictly a tactical conversation or a conversation about what we should do tactically or what we believe is the right way to go tactically. Um, you know, people have their own uh, moral compass and I have my own moral compass um, and people have to do what they feel is right for them. So I, I really disagree with like the, the vote shaming happening on both yeah. sides. The people who say that they want to vote for Biden and they get vote shamed for that and then vice versa. Like everyone just chill for a second. OK, um, if you want to have a conversation about tactics, cool, but it, you can't push. I feel uncomfortable pushing someone to do something from my own personal moral perspective. So I'm not interested in having that debate. Um, and if uh, a, a black working class voter feels that it goes against his or her principles to vote for Biden, then who am I to tell them your, your principles are wrong? Right. So that's yeah. kind of where I'm coming from in that perspective. Right. Yeah. And um, all right. We should wrap up because yeah. I need to eat something before I pass out. <laughs> Fair. Um, um, yeah. Well, that's yeah. Uh, so thanks, everyone. Um, Thank I hope you. I aggregated enough questions. Um, always send more questions. Please hit like. Please hit subscribe. Um, and uh, send this to your friends. Please share this video with a friend or two this week. Yeah. And and check out check out um uh Virgil Texas and Brianna Joy Gray. Uh their new podcast Bad Faith is fantastic. Become a patron. Um you know, highly like I just have deep admiration uh for Brianna because she's taken a lot of crap yeah. um and has remained yeah. uh defiant, strong and it's not an easy thing to do. Um so Totally. And it's a great show. Yeah. yeah, you should support uh, leftist media as much as you can. It's part of building the institutions we need to win. Yeah, so. the amount of hate she gets is like disproportionate. It's crazy. It's uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. It's like yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Anyway, um, thank you so much for watching, guys. Uh, we love you. Thank you for supporting the show. Uh, please subscribe if you haven't already. Get your friends and family members to subscribe if they haven't already, and have an awesome week. We'll see you soon.